Good afternoon, uh, good to see you. My name is Brandon Addison. We're in the session called Forming Leaders for the Life of the World. There was a scheduled mix-up earlier, so I'm sure more people will kind of be coming in as time goes on. Um, uh, two roles I play in our city. One is I work for an um, organization called Made to Flourish. It's a national organization in 28 cities. And really what Made to Flourish exists is for two reasons. Uh, one is we believe pastors and their craft is sacred, so I'm going to lift that. Up. And then what we, we want to close the Sunday to Monday gap. And so we don't simply want to have churches and pastors and organizations minister for the life of Sunday, but for the life of the world. And so uh, we'll be talking more and more about that over the course of the next couple hours together as well. Um, in addition, where I spend 90% of my time is that I'm an EPC pastor. I lead a church called the Neighborhood Church, uh, the west side of Littleton, Colorado. All to say, if you are a TE or an RE in this room, I know what your life is like. I know what it's like to live in the trenches of ministry and, and all the things that come together with that, all the glorious obstacles, the challenges, the sermon blocks, uh, the great meetings that you have, the hard meetings that you have. Um, in fact, I've been thinking about uh, the metaphors of the church um, recently, and um, a couple have come to mind. Francis Schaeffer called the church uh, a glorious ruin. It's glorious, it's full of beauty, it's meant to be the outpost of the world to come, but it's also broken and busted and incomplete. Luther was a little more crass. Anybody remember what Martin Luther said, the great reformer? He said, the church is my mother. <laughs> but it's also a whore. The idea, the tension, it's beautiful, but it's also broken and hard and we get stumbled along the way. Um, Richard Rohr is a Catholic contemplative called the church the greatest moral and artistic problem and issue. He sees the beauty and the brokenness. The vision that's gotten to me lately is uh, from this gentleman in church history, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, theologian, Nazi resistor, pastor, seminary president. His story occurred in the 1930s. Uh, he was pastoring in New York and then in London, and then he was called up by the German Confessing Church. Uh, what happened in Germany at that point in time is the National German Church was co-opted. You're we saying Hitler was the Lord of the Church. And what the Confessing Church began to say is, no, Jesus Christ is the Lord of the Church. And so Bonhoeffer was called to lead the seminary in the middle of nowhere, current-day Poland, called Findenwald. And if you heard of him, his writings at this point in time, 37 to 39, um, Life Together, The Cost of Discipleship all came out of these two or three years there. And as his writings continued on, his friends got really critical of Bonhoeffer. They go, Dietrich, you're just being a little too intense. Why are you creating all these theological systematics? Why are you making people get up early in the morning to sing hymns and, and go tonight in prayer? And finally, he let his friends visit Fildenwald with them. Go, come with me, spend a day at lectures. And they still weren't convinced of his work. They were critical of him. So the story goes by Charles Marsh is that Bonhoeffer rode across the Uder Sound and went up the crest of a hill. And above the crest of the hill below is a Nazi training camp. He said, you see the squadron leaders and the planes coming in and coming out. And he told his friend, do you see that over there? Do you see that? They're training them for a life of hatred and bigotry and oppression. This is what I love about this. He pointed back across the Uter Sound to his insignificant seminary of 40 people. As you see that, that's why this must be stronger than that. And I love that vision of the church. It's a, it's a vision of resistance to the cultural age, that it must be stronger 
than that. That's why my work focuses on forming leaders for the life of the world, because I want the church to be strong and have a subversive witness for the sake of the world. And to do that, we'll talk about some recoveries. But say you just came here for GA, you're like, hey, this is the first day. I'm just here to get in the Colorado sunshine. I'm looking forward to the festivities later on. I'm gonna get some craft beer. Here's some things that you can do so you don't have to form leaders for the life of the world. Uh, here's six ways not to form leaders for the life of the world, if, if you need this. Um, and if you want the slide deck later on, I'm happy to send it to you. So don't feel free. You've got to scribble notes or anything like that. Um, in your churches or ministries, always emphasize full-time ministry. And if you commission somebody publicly, only commission missionaries. Only the people doing really good spiritual work. If you're a communicator, focus sermons solely on morality and interior sp spirituality. Only on your private life with God. Don't talk about life of the world. Um, ensure your budget and church events only contain a Sunday life. Cut anything outside of it. Teach from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20. Make sure those are your bookends. Don't start with creation. Start with the fall. And then don't get to the new heavens and new earth. Just talk about how things are really bad. And then Jesus spiritually makes everything perfect. Make sure you teach from those bookends. Make sure small groups only focus on their community, their own community, and their spirituality, which is always challenging to do. The, the work of the church, or the energy of the church is always, the inertia of the church is always internal. That's what I was trying to say. Then last but not least, sorry, this might be a dig. I'm not trying to dig Tim LaHaye or anything like that. But read Left Behind a lot. And read it again and again. Make sure you have that escapist spirituality. But these are the things we're going to talk about today. Three things that I think we need to recover. Um, one is to recover pastoral wholeness. That's not necessarily just for pastors ordained. That's for anybody who's following Christ. We need to bring our whole lives before God. The second is recover a theological imagination. Then lastly, recover robust discipleship. But before we jump in, how about this? Uh, how about we break up a groups of four-ish and just go, hey, where are you from? What's your context? And then what kind of brought you in here today? So break up in groups of four, and then we'll jump into this in a few minutes. You're in the right spot. Yeah, it's forming leaders for the life of the world. It's talking about like, public discipleship. That's what I'm looking for. Okay, yeah, come on in. We, we, we just did a breakout paper. Guys are just introducing themselves. Oh, I saw so, people were just ignoring me. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah. Jump on in wherever you want. Okay, yeah, yeah. absolutely. All right, take about 60 more seconds. A little more time to discuss as the, as the afternoon goes on. Oh, you went. He wasn't working. Went to. 
Circle back up. It's good. We All right, the first thing we're going to talk about when forming leaders for the life of the world is this idea, this first idea of recovering pastoral wholeness. Or if you're, you're not, if you're not a pastor in this room, even multiple hats, just recovering personal wholeness. The, what, what we say with made to flourish, and this is important to us, we want to restore the whole person to the office and the craft of pastor. I'm a wordsmith. Words matter to me, so let me break those down. Uh, first, the craft of the pastor. Pastors never arrive. It's iterative. We're always working and honing and becoming and narrowing. It's this idea of ongoing work. I love this term office. Usually when you think of office, we think of kind of benign things like I go to my office to study or I pay the bills in my office. But in the 1700s, you know what office meant? It was a public responsibility to the community. So when you're elected judge, you were seated as, as the office of judge. You were meant to have a public responsibility for justice. For a medical doctor, you were the office of a doctor. Your goal was to promote healing to a community. For pastors, the office of pastor, we have a public responsibility in our parish, in our community, in our town. But the key thing we want to talk about first at Made to Flourish is the whole person. We live our whole lives before God. Now, we break it down in six domains. You can break it down in different domains, but these are the categories we use organizationally. Uh, first, mind. We know our mind really well. We're all probably educated, well-to-do people. That's that prefrontal cortex in front of you, that the CEO suite of your brain. It's a labor of mind in which we cultivate the mind of Christ, growing both as learners for the sake of knowing Christ and serving others. And then it's heart. We typically believe that's down here. That's actually in the back of your brain. That's the limbic brain. It's born 98% developed, by the way. It's the heart. It's your emotional life. It's the affectional life. It's, in the Greek, they call it the cardia, the CEO suite, where your desires blossom. It's a labor of heart in which we cultivate the love of Christ, growing an intimate knowledge of God in ourselves. Body. We're embodied creatures. We know this. We feel strength in our body. We feel limitations in our body. We sense changes in our body. Seven years ago, I had a full head of hair. That is no longer the case. We are embodied and cultured creatures. We feel our limitations. And then it moves out beyond ourselves. Another domain is relationships. We are in relationships with a variety of people. We went around the room. We have a variety of different labels. Father, pastor, director, coworker, colleague, son, grandfather. It's a labor of relationships in which we seek in our households, our friendships, and our enemies to reflect the reality of the body of Christ growing in the daily works of communal love. 
We bring our goods to the table, both intellectual goods and personal goods. It's a labor with respect to our goods in which we learn to steward the creation of Christ, growing in our ability to seed, nourish, harvest, and bestow the gifts we have for others. And finally, it's vocation. We have been summoned by God to work for the sake of the world, to use our hands and our minds for common good. It's a labor with respect to our vocation, which we seek to join the work of Christ. All right, real quick, any questions? I flew through that because I'm going to give you an exercise in a second. Any questions on that? Things that need clarity? Ahas? All right, here's the catch. I'll tell you, here's the catch. Most of us live fragmented lives, if we're honest. We've been fragmented in our own personalhood. We overthink with our minds and don't think emotionally. We can be fragmented on our relationships. Even ministry is alienating. Most of the people I work with in our city are lonely and disconnected and longing for places they can find wholeness. Uh, also, our work can create toil. It's hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. So here's the benefit. I want to create a little bit of space to assess where are you. There's a whole person survey. It should be that second sheet here. The only way we can begin to form leaders for the life of the world is to recognize where we are. And so this isn't going to be for anybody else. This is not going to be like a mass confession where you're strong, where you're weak. This is for you. So take five minutes to look at these questions and what sticks out to you. Also, this is a great tool to use in the context of ministry, even to set goals for yourself to know where you are or to hand it to staff confidentially to go, where might God be calling you to work and grow or confess and challenge yourself? So it's something to continue to use as time moves on. Anything like stick out or novel, kind of an aha out of this you've never thought about before? You don't have to go personal with it, but just curious. where it says if you're a te- I'm, saying, I'm not a teaching elder but am I honoring the Sabbath I think you're just killing yourself on, on Sunday if that's what you mean by the Sabbath well S- Sabbath can be that's work day yeah Sabbath can be for pastors it's kind of unique where it's like yeah. is there a time where where I'm off. And even with Made to Flourish, we talk about Sabbath, not as a legalistic thing, but it's an act of faith. God is at work and I'm limited. So I'm going to rest, trusting God is at work in the midst of my limitations. That's the beauty of Sabbath. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. That's a work <laughs> Yeah, if, if you treat this like an assessment, yeah. you'll add more rocks into your backpack. You don't want to do that. It's more of an, a sense of awareness. But that's good. It's thoughtful. You think, you think um, I... Uh, <clears throat> Um, I don't preach every Sunday, but when I am preaching, uh, I always I always look at it as uh, as long as I have all my preparation, or even a, and I, I teach more often than I preach. So I'm gonna, as long as I have my preparation done before the Sabbath starts, and I try and do a, a kind of a 6 p.m. Saturday to 6 p.m. Sunday something like mm-hmm. that, dinner Saturday to dinner yep. Sunday, you know. I mean, I'm going to be at church on the Sabbath, mm-hmm. so I just happen to be now giving what I've already prepared. And so, I, I mean, I don't think I'm kidding myself by calling that my Sabbath. No. Because my day off 
you know, I'm doing all sorts of honeydew stuff around the house and all that, and <laughs> that ain't sad. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> that's so, good. I mean, that's kind of, but I, but I don't take like, uh, I, I rarely would take uh, a, a meeting. Somebody says, "Oh, I, I need to meet with you about thus and such." It's not usually on yeah. Sunday. It's going to be some other day of the week. Yeah. Well, you're bringing up a good point. Like the Sabbath's made for man, not for God. So it's a space devoted away. Anything else stick out? One thing that stuck out to me is uh, how helpful these questions are and how infrequently I ask them of myself. Yes. Yes. It's, you can't answer all of them. So I'd encourage you when you look through it, don't try to, if you're an achiever like me, don't try to bat 100 on the test. That's not the goal. <laughs> it's to go, this is my whole life before God. So where do I need to glory and thank? And maybe where do I need to confess? Because I often, in the busyness of life, being a young dad, leading a church, doing life, you get tunnel vision. And you realize like we're whole people. And part of the reason we're doing this, to like develop leaders for the life of the world, we have to recognize we're whole people so we can minister to the whole person. So it's a both and. So great comment there. Anything else before we kind of move on and shift gears a little bit? I saw in two of these, specifically the heart and body, somewhat seasonality in terms of one's life. Yes. And our growing, um, our thoughts about growing, where our heart is, our self-knowledge, mm -hmm. how that kind of I reflect back 40 years ago to where I am today and where I think I'm going to be just even next year. Yes. So it, it's not rigid and it's not... Mm -mm. It's, it's definitely, it's not static. It's dynamic. You remind me, we, um, we do things in Denver. So we did a pastor's retreat for Gordon McDonald, who was uh, a, a pretty large, successful pastor in the eighties, written a lot of books, um, eighties and nineties. Well, we brought him in and we go, Hey, you're 79 going on 80. What, what can you teach from us? And one of his lessons was expect to reform your spiritual life every seven years. It'll be transformed. You have different interests, different goals. The things that you did previously aren't going to work now. You've got to be able to change and move and adapt. And I think that's appropriate. That's needed. It's definitely dynamic in that regard. So, All right, step one. Let's, uh, this is kind of recovering pastoral wholeness. This is what we try to do with Made to Flourish, try to connect the whole person, make sure we're whole people. The other thing we attempt to do is what we call recover theological imagination. I love that term, theological imagination. Um, this is from a church I pre previously worked at in Nashville, Tennessee. It, it call, it's called God's Story, and it talks about the four main chapters of the biblical story. At Made to Flourish, we talk about getting the bookends right. If our functional theology begins at Genesis, Genesis 3 and Revelation 20, and our main goal is to save souls, to make sure they go to heaven, that's going to produce somebody in our church. But we think the bookends are broader than that. Has anybody heard of the four-chapter gospel before? Kind of raise your hand. Okay, this is good. I was going to fly by this, but I, I won't do this. Uh, I'll kind of tease it out a little bit. Um, and you probably know this in, intuitively, but the first chapter of the gospel begins in Genesis 1, the biblical story, Genesis 1 and 2. We don't have to make 100% in the Bible exam, but there's smart people in this room. So what do we remember about Genesis 1 and 2? Let's just kind of throw things out. It was good. Sorry, who said that? Nikki. Yeah, it was good. He said it multiple times. It was good. It was good. It was good. God George? Created, yeah. over and over. Yes, God created over and over and over collectively. 
Human beings are created. He said it was very good in a perfect world. Do you know what Adam gets? A vocation. He gets a job. He becomes a gardener to guard and tend. So what we see at the beginning of the world is this idea that a job, a vocation, is not a curse. It's not evil. It's inherently good. We also see this idea, Cornelius Plantinga talks about it this way. I love this word, shalom. Uh, back in Memphis, Tennessee, there's this golf tournament called um, the FedEx St. Jude Classic. And they say, hush, y'all, or shalom, y'all. Typically, we think it's, oh, peace. But really, in the Old Testament, it means flourishing. It means the way the world should be. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, we see justice. We see wholeness. We don't see um, inequity. We don't see our jobs as idolatry or as identity. You know, nobody in Genesis 1 is going up and looking at your name tab and going, oh, what's the size of your church? And do you live in a significant town or an insignificant town? <laughs> Nobody's doing that in Genesis 1 and 2. That happens later on in Genesis 3, though. So this is where creation begins. We get to see this idea of shalom and beauty. And we see vocation and faith. And then what happens in Genesis 3? The fall. Yeah, well, let's go a little more. Like, and the great theologian Bob Dylan, everything breaks down. Everything is broken. I mean, that's what you see. Like creation turns on itself. It's thorns and thistles. Adam and Eve break. It, Adam basically blames Eve. Do you remember that? It was the woman that you gave me. So relationships are broken. They're ashamed. They hide. This, this spiritual idea is gone. Like, so it breaks. With made to flourish when it comes to work, this is what we see in Genesis 3 when it comes to work. We see work becomes toilsome. It becomes hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. Also, work can become our identity, our idolatry. It can be systems of injustice where we kind of push people down and maintain our own systems of power and control. That's what happens in Genesis 3. And then redemption happens, and there are hints before Jesus, we know this, right? We see it in Genesis 4, even Enoch begins to walk with God, he's not cursed. Adam and Eve are clothed by animal skins. Great examples in Exodus, God delivers his people from Pharaoh. Beautiful stories, but the key part is when Christ comes, of course. He lives a perfect life, he dies a death, we deserve to die. He's raised again, and he said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. Now in redemption, to fast forward a lot of biblical stories, we're giving agency to what we call join with God in the mission of God, to be part of the renewal of all things. That's where the church is birthed. But then we come to Revelation 21 and 22, this last picture, this last bookend. What do we know about that? What's there? God, yes. Anything specifically? Heaven? Picture of heaven? His presence with no more of mm -hmm. our illusions or barriers or mm -hmm. misconceptions. Doesn't mm -hmm. it talk about us reigning? Yeah. It talks about us reigning. And this is kind of what I got caught up. I came to Christ when I was 17 years old. And I'm like, oh, heaven will be great. I'll like sit on a cloud. And I'll have a harp, and I'll have a full head of luscious hair, and we'll sing a lot to God. And it'll be this spiritual existence. But what we see in Revelation 21 and 22 is a physical reality. The new heavens, new earth coming down. And then there's a, bu a bunch of symmetry in there and all that. But it's a physical existence. It's life that should be. It's life that ought 
to be. You see some unique things as well there that I don't have time to get into. It says the kings of the nations bring the glory and honors of the nations into the new heavens and new earth. So these cultured goods that humans have created, they bring them in. And what Andy Crouch says is they, they're the furnishings of heaven, that humanity gets to furnish heaven. This is how we talk about it. I know that was not like, if you have more questions about that, we can go deep in that area. There's plenty of books written about that as well, but it's a system of continuity. Like what began in a garden ends in a city. This is how we talk about it and made to flourish. Creation, what life ought to be by God's design. The world of shalom. Fall, what life is because of sin and corruption of the fall. We know that life well, don't we? That's the newspaper headlines. That's the school shootings in my community. That's the epidemic psychological loneliness happening at the epicenter of my community. Then we go to redemption, which begins to ask what life can be because Jesus is risen. Knowing we don't bring the kingdom, that comes later on, on what life will be when God's full, this reign is fully established. Think with me really quick. This is going to be a false dichotomy. If your church, your ministry, your life only could focus on one of these areas, what would happen? If you only focused on creation, what life ought to be or what, what life was, I would commend to you that your life would be based upon nostalgia. Always trying to go back to some high ground at some point in time. You guys tracking with me a little bit? If you base your life, your ministry, solely on fall, what life is, it'll eventually come to cynicism because nothing's going to change. Or fortification. I've got to keep the bid, bad, corrosive world out. If you focus your life simply on consummation, what life will be when God's reign is fully established? C.S. Lewis talks about this. Hopeful passivity. Just waiting for God to do His work. But what we've seen as we've done work with Made to Flourish is when we begin to focus on redemption, what life can be in Christ, when we have a realistic optimism. Realistic optimism means we take the fall in account, but we believe God is with us. What our churches and what our businesses and what our cities can become, because God is at work. We see a lot of imagination come to play. Let me stop there real quick before I move on. Just questions, comments. Uh, that was like two years of seminary education for me in like six minutes, so I know I might have left somebody in, in, the, in the weeds, and that's okay. But thoughts? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's easier to point where other people are or other churches are than where you are. Yep. And it's a false dichotomy. We need all four. But it's been really exciting to see when people begin to look at the redemptive potential of, of what's occurring in our community. Um, Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, if if you if you read too much of reality or the newspaper headlines without the hope of redemption, you get cynical or really protective as well. 
Like you're, you got to hold on to something for sure. Yes. Just love that this makes the gospel bigger than individual salvation. Yes. So that's a big thing. The gospel is individual salvation. Jesus has saved our souls and brought us to Christ and God, and that is true. And there's more to it. And this is where this imagination place comes in. It's a both and. Christ is certainly at the center, but Christ, um, going back to joy to the world, he's come to make his blessings flow. As far as the curse is found, the ground is cursed. There's a physical aspect of redemption. So yes, it's true. It's beyond that. Hope you all understand that here too. Like we're firmly evangelical, uh, firmly believe in atonement. And there's some, some bookends to play with too. All right, let me tell you how this is kind of coming across with some churches that have gone through a learning community and some businesses, um, how they're thinking about this can be in their community as an outflow of this physical redemption. The first one um, on the left is Crossroads Community Church. It's large, multi-site church in Thornton. One of those churches that has the hard, difficult issue of, hey, there's too many people coming. we got to build a bigger facility. They're in that stage of life. And through the learning community, what they discovered is they built a bigger facility that would simply be life for Sunday morning. But we want to contribute to the life of the world. We want to ask what can be in our community. And so through the experience of doing some asset mapping, basically, what do we have? What does our community need? They found out the biggest issue in their community is affordable housing. In fact, in Denver, the median size house is $500,000, which is ridiculous. We can talk all about the injustices of that as well. But what they decided to do, instead of building a new building, is subdivide half of their property and redevelop and put affordable housing in their community to begin to help solve the housing crisis. And, oh, and by the way, yeah, this is church-run and assisted for the sake of the benefit of the community. That's what they did through the learning community. So that was a physical um, embodiment of it. Village 7 uh, Presbyterian Church, it's a PCA church in Colorado Springs, went through a learning community. And they didn't do anything physically with their building, but they said, you know what we're doing? Our Sunday school education hour is just a mess. It's like one of those buffets where there's Italian food and Chinese food and Indian food, and you get the full-size yogurt. There's too many offerings. It doesn't make any sense. We're just kind of this free market educational hour. It didn't really make sense for us. We're not forming people like we want to. So they, they decided to focus everything on public discipleship, vocation, and the life of the world. That's what they're beginning to do with the educational hour. And it's been hard for them, because guess what? When you begin to do that, there's a whole lot of loss, because Aunt Sally, who's been in her community group for 12 years studying the same thing, there's difficulty there. So they've had to slowly begin to change some of this. And so they said after a year, honestly, it's been, we got 25 people who are part of our leadership team are really excited, and probably 15 people are ready to burn us down at the same point in time, making this change. That's just the reality they're beginning to live in. Uh, the other church is Park Church in uh, urban uh, Denver. They're doing great work. Um, they're one of the young hipster beard oil, skinny jean churches. Um, a lot of young families, uh, a lot of transfers, a lot of creatives, gig economies. So instead of renovating their building, what they begin to do is renovate their basement space. And instead of doing it for the sake of their own church, they developed co-working in there. And then artist space. 
And they also developed a place for an ESL school for Spanish speakers to come in. They want to be a community center. And so they're beginning to do that as well. Uh, the, the last church is my church, neighborhood church. We don't meet in a property. We meet in a school, so we don't have facility assets. What we begin to ask ourselves is this question. What do our neighborhoods need to look like in our community? Colorado is a difficult place. People move here for square footage, access to the mountains. We're usually pretty anonymous. What if our community attempted to invest in our neighborhoods and actually neighbored really well? So what we did, we took a portion of our budget and we turned them into neighborhood grants. So if anybody in our congregation wants to neighbor well, which basically means to kick down loneliness, connect with people or fellow, fellow image barriers, to build bridges, our church will fund that, will celebrate that. It can be as anything from having a block party to a birthday party, serving single moms. But what we're attempting to do is play our part in trying to re-neighbor a very isolated place in our community. So the, this is just some examples of what can be. Uh, because of that idea of redemption. Let me go to businesses real quick. Uh, churches are exciting, but even businesses are even more exciting to me. So let me jump in here real quick, and then we'll, we'll take a break. Here are four businesses in the, in the Denver area. Uh, one is Miller Wall. It's a retaining wall company. There's nothing exciting about a retaining wall company. A retaining wall company will never get on Shark Tank. Tom Miller uh, is the son of the founder. When Miller Wall was taken over, it was a machismo culture. Talk about toxic masculinity. This is the story that I heard from Tom, who I began to work with. When my dad was leading it and a foreman wanted a raise, it was in a public meeting. So all hands on deck meeting. And Tom's dad said, you can have a raise if you can beat me in a fight right now, literally, that's what the culture was. Um, that's not how our elder meetings work, by the way, but that's how, that's how, that's how it actually occurred. And uh, his, Tom took it over and then basically began to lead the culture like his dad did. It, he wasn't as machismo, but it was all about performance. The key metric was this. If you wanted to survive at Miller Wall, you better lay 100 square feet of retaining wall a day per person, just sling wall. And then Tom had a conversion. It was a conversion of, this industry's got a black, black eye and I'm building this for me. What if this was Jesus' organization? What if this was more like the kingdom in Shalom? That means I actually have to care about my employees, mentally, physically. I gotta create a job transition pipeline so I could develop a career. We have to change our metrics. And that's what Norwal is beginning to do. They're not asking the question anymore of, hey, a thousand square foot of wall. They're asking, how does this become more like the kingdom of God? This means we have to be completely different than the rest of our industry. And that's because of a pastor saying what can be. Another organization is SageQuest. It's my friend Jay Brenneman. Uh, he works with family organizations and entrepreneurs. And he consults. And he's discovered that entrepreneurs are for two things um, in the most rudimentary sense. Um, money, you need, you need money. And at, to some extent, you want to make a name for yourself. There's some ego in there. He consults with entrepreneurs saying, hey, how does your business and your company and your idea contribute to good? How does it have a kingdom-based mindset? How do you begin to measure that from the very beginning? Um, Purple Door is a great organization in Denver. Uh, they have a roastery and a coffee shop. And if you walk in, it's excellent coffee, but then you notice the coworkers don't look necessarily like you. They have tattoos and stories. And what Mark's done is provided jobs for people coming out of addiction and homelessness because he's concerned about 
everybody has rights. Redemption is possible for anybody. And the last one, and I love this, because we go from retaining walls to finances. Chatham Financial, there's nothing different from a, a retaining wall company and then somebody does risk and derivatives. And my, my buddies explain this multiple times. They don't fully understand what it is. But this is what um, Mike Bontrager is trying to do in Littleton and then Kennett Square. Is Anybody knows finances are really opaque. They're hard to understand. It's got a black eye, financial crisis. He's saying, yeah, we're in the risk and derivative business, but really we're here to restore trust. We're fundamentally here to restore trust and transparency in our community. So these are just a sampling of businesses um, who are attempting to think through faith and work and this idea of theological imagination in a helpful way. There's one more I want to show you uh, from a pastor in Kansas City, and then we'll take a quick break before we jump into something else. If it shows up, let's see. Yeah. October 11th, 2014, uh, I was flying from New York to Charlotte, uh, connecting flight back to Kansas City. And as we were, we were up in the air, um, we noticed that there was a drop in, in uh, temperature in our, in our plane. And it was a little bit alarming, but we were like, no, no big deal. I was kind of dozing off. But then our, we started to notice our, our plane dropping in altitude rather quickly. There's a little bit of panic. I'm awake now. And then the panic increased when the oxygen masks deployed from, from above us. <laughs> I looked at my friend Chris, who's sitting next to me, and we were pretty shocked. We just put our, our masks on and, and prepared for what was next. We had no idea what it was. No one was telling us what was going on, and the plane started to go down even faster. And in this moment, I, I was honestly reflecting on the fact that this might, this is, this is it. That was a moment of thinking. Yeah, that's a terrible sound. I am near death, and I got my phone out and began crafting a text message to my wife and my three daughters letting them know that I love them, that I'm thinking about them, and that, that I'm on a plane, that we're going down. And a few minutes later, the captain came on and notified us that we lost cabin pressure, that everything else was functioning fine, that we just needed to drop to 10,000 feet uh, so that we could breathe properly. And so obviously, we can now kind of take a big sigh of relief. Um, we can take the oxygen masks off, but, but it was very much a scary moment. Um, and as my friend Chris and I were talking and reflecting and processing, about what just happened, we noticed that as these oxygen masks are still dangling in front of us, that on the side of a little bag, it says Lenexa, Kansas, which is a suburb of, of our hometown. And I kind of made a note of that. I was like, that's interesting that this company in my backyard made, made this device that really helped us. Uh, but it wasn't until about a few months later where our church, we were going through a, a sermon series on faith, work, and, and economics, of all things. And it was during that series that I think the Lord was, was doing something in my heart and mind by granting me this kind of imagination for the way in which the work of literally millions of people uh, served to bless me and make my life better. And, and I, I just started to sit at my desk and look at all the things that makes my life easy, that allows me to do my work well. I was immediately reminded of the oxygen mask. So I got on online and, and just searched for oxygen mask Lenexa, Kansas. And what popped up was BE Aerospace. And I looked at their website and I didn't even have really a plan. I was just, just kind of responding. And I, I went and found a, a contact and sent an email and shared the story of the oxygen mask and our, our flight. And, and, and as I'm sharing the story, I, I decided to also just share why I wanted to express my gratitude because I saw a connection between the way in which we work 
and how that blesses and serves our neighbors. So in the end of that email, I, I said this, if I may be so bold, I'd like to thank God for the work that he has called and equipped your company to do. I know that not many people think of work like this as being work God cares about, but I strongly beg to differ. I believe that God cares deeply about all work that is done well and promotes human flourishing. So again, thank you for your work. And please, by all means, keep doing what you're doing and do it well for the common good of all. When I got the email, I said, well, you know, our people work here every day. They know we provide or produce uh, life support systems. Yeah? I always emphasize with my people that uh, uh, the products we make here are designed and used to save people's lives and that it is very important that they produce very high quality products and that uh, for doing that or in doing that that they follow the procedures and work instructions and I thought it would be a very good message for them to hear it from someone other than their boss. Yeah? When Reed came we had the all hands meeting and uh, it was a, a really a fantastic experience because there was probably very oh, dry and to see that uh, what they are doing every day impacted a person and his family and a lot of other person you know around you know, the aircraft was really something that uh, impacted the people yeah, it really did and there were people that came up to me crying and telling me how meaningful it was no one has ever taken the time to express gratitude for our work. And I was so amazed by that and it led me to think, gosh, how significant it is for us to pause, to thank people specifically for their work, to not just make them feel better about what they do, but to also give them a more robust imagination for the fact that God is at work in our world through our work and that God cares about our work because our work is a means by which we love and serve our neighbors for the good of all people and the glory of His name. Alright. I love that video because it shows just the small act of intentionality of helping connect dots to the bigger picture of what's going on. So let's break up in groups one more time. One, general comments on the video. Good, so I thought Tom was about to get on, get on the screen too. General comments on the video. And then, what imagination do you need in your context? What do you need to think about what can be if you wanted to form leaders for the life of the world? Think about that as well in your context. So, thoughts about the video, and then thoughts, what do you need to lift your imagination in your ministry context? Just break. Yep. Oh, you know. Yeah. Concept in mind is that all work is redeemed by God. 
Yeah, grab all that stuff. Yeah, whatever you need. Yep. Yep. You too. It's been too long. I know. So you're doing working with Made to Flourish? Oh yeah, I'm leading the church, and then I'm working with Made to Flourish as well. Awesome. So yeah, it's been planting here in Denver. I took over a church. It's about five years old. Okay. And so yeah, it's on the west side, west side of Littleton. Awesome. And then you're at Central. I'm at Central. Good. Back at Central. Senior pastor. Is that right? Okay. Were you? Where were you previously? Senior associate. At, no, but didn't you I go? I was in Virginia. Uh, senior pastor at EPC Church. In Great. Okay. Yeah. That's good. I was there for six years. Okay. Uh, yeah. Coming up on three. Okay, so we're, I'm roughly about three and two. So kind of into the journey and all that. Yeah. So I kind of. Yeah. It's fun. How was it coming back? It's been rough. I mean, it's yeah. Cold. Yeah. Uh, so after Dan left, it kind of imploded. Did they have a long season before you came? Was it like an interim or? It was. Uh, Three and a half years. Yeah. I had two interims. So Bob Burns came. Yes. Big blow blew up, and then another interim Bob Hopper came, and I followed him. Okay. So, That's hard. Yeah. Because there's not many people like Dan, so unique anyway, mm-hmm. with what he brings mm-hmm. to Clayton. Yeah. You know. And so, and what they wanted. You know. So <sighs> Had been the platform centric kind of yep. church and wanted a different one yeah. separate with mm-hmm. leaders, you know, to be yeah. who they need to be. And mm-hmm. like, well, that's me, but I'm not sure that's what you really want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, yeah what's, as, what's aspirational and what's actual? It's so hard to get there. Yeah. So I talked or, to the yeah. session about okay. this and they told me, I use that language, I said, everything you just said is aspirational, yeah. every single thing. Yes. And the getting there is going to be. Yes, there's going to be a lot of loss and change. That's where we are. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yes. Um, okay. It's born, you know, yeah. changing expectations. And totally. That. It's been, it's been, yeah. Yep. That and um, getting God's off the session you know, with Regenerate. That's been, that's been job one. Yes. And, uh, it's also a hard conversation, but I know you're a leader in the church. I don't know if you believe in Christ. Jesus. Yeah, I don't think you know Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so, and then we had uh, our second uh, student pastor sexually abused a kid. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It's all the stuff that surprises you and, you know, it's not on the plan. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was hard because we did it. We handled it the right way. Kind of open, public. Mm-hmm. And uh, made the newspapers and some of these same elders were yep. upset because I wasn't protecting the central brand. Mm-hmm. We're, we're out for brand repentance and humility. That's, mm-hmm. that's where we are. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> so that was right. Yep. So you're almost like going after like the institutional ego. Yeah. A little bit, you know, it's like, it's like, like we gotta like let this die a little bit so it can birth what's become. What's so become. I, preach, I just finished preaching through Philippians and spent like four weeks on Philippians two. 
Yeah. yeah. I got hammered by some of my elders. Like, yeah. Why do you tell my pride so much? Yeah. Because you're asking. That's, yes. That's, yes. That's yeah. Yeah. This is our this is our sin. We need to learn to repent of. Yeah. It's a lie. Yep. Yep. And those, wow. We can't expect the spirit to bless if we're not willing to repent of our sin. Yes. When everybody else. Is. So that's, yep. That's right. There we go. Oh man. Yeah. We're glad you're doing that work. And thanks, man. Pray yeah. for me. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I get it. Oh. Yes. 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 I'm glad you're with me to flourish. Yeah. Uh, follow Luke. Hang out with Luke. So. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're thinking through some of this, I can I can help you. And we're personally, our church is a year and a half in, and I'm about to get into this. Like. It's not a recipe. Mm. Even for all of life discipleship, it's not a recipe. Mm. It's a lot of like, hey, we got to uh, fail to meet your expectations mm. at a rate mm. you can handle. And there's a lot of functional theology. Mm. Mm. No doubt. You know, yeah. even where we are, it's like, oh, we're here because it's safe for a family. It's conservative values. We're entertained. It's like, no, like, we want you to be out. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We've had that conversation. It's kind of hard to be interested in the kingdom of Jesus you're looking at this place as a fortress. Yeah, it does. Yes, exactly. It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. Thanks for doing Yeah, for sure. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, th- thank Case Thorpe. He, he brought me up to it. Case Thorpe's like, you need to do this. I'm like, okay, I will. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> He's a good guy. Hey, John. Good to see you. Yeah. Good to see you. Yeah. Sorry I'm an hour late. I got no, you're fine. Okay. Oh, you're good. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Are you all gonna talk some more? Yeah, we're gonna talk some more. Yeah, we got another hour. We have a panel in a minute. So yeah, come on in and hang out. Yeah, hang out in the back or wherever. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's good. Yep. Thank you. All right. Let's circle back up. Yeah, whatever, yeah. The first row is free goodies, by the way, too. Hey, as, yeah. Well, as you circle back in, I just wanted to tell you, um, Made to Flourish is a network that wants to give generously to pastors and marketplace and ministry leaders. And so um, you can see some resources, learning community. Also, if you get online later on today, there's um, a batch of free resources to kind of think through this. It's no strings attached. I can pass it around. Everybody likes free books, but you get a packet of this. As well, um, based upon this afternoon, we'll send you a, a free PDF too called Discipleship of the Monday in Mind because we want you to help think creatively through some of these. But just real quick, what did you guys talk about? What kind of uh, came, came out in your groups? What was insightful or thoughtful or novel? We were just discussing the relationship between um, being nice to people and how that glorifies God, not, sometimes not necessarily even without mentioning Mm-hmm. So like it's this weird dynamic where like traditionally evangelism is done one way, and I think culture is kind of shifting in such a way that people are very hesitant when you start to even bring God or Christ up. And so like it's almost like you have to you have to lay the groundwork first, mm-hmm. like relationship building, yep. and um, and being nice, and yes. smiling to people, and then it's through that relationship that you can start kind of expressing where that comes from mm-hmm. in yourself. Mm-hmm. It's just it's an interesting. It's it's interesting to kind of think about it, and every part of the country is a little bit different yes. from New York. So it's very yes. <laughs> Why are you being so friendly to me? I just don't trust you. <laughs> like, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I, I would say we live in a polarized and divided age, uh, an age of stereotype and labeling, and. 
Christian anthropology is the best resource we have because everybody fundamentally is made in the image of God first. And so there I look at essence and I can be present. And niceness can be a technique. I'm from the South, right? So it's like, oh, bless your heart. That's not being nice. (laughs) But it it can be bridge building in such a divided and polarized world. It can certainly break down Christian stereotypes if somebody's been burned. Like, is God so glorified even in just that being nice to somebody? Like in that groundwork of bridge building, is God still glorified even if Christ's name yep. is not specifically placed on it? I don't know, it's just an interesting Good. conversation. Good. Yeah. I think his action in contacting that company was saying, you matter. Yes. And you are significant. Yes. And what you're doing yes. is huge. Yes. So, yes. And that is a universal positive message. Right. So made to flourish, we talk about that as economics, and that's a weird term, because when I think of economics, I think of the line graph in college, but what we talk about is all of us have a part to play in the beauty and flourishing of human beings if we're doing it right. And so what the pastor was doing is going, you, do you see how your work leads to the flourishing and goodness of God's intended design by making this? And usually what we do in today's society is we reduce people's value and their meaning. So it's a deep intentionality there. Yep. So good, good comment there. I'm glad you caught that. I was thinking how it changes the conversation from, I mean, right now, if you think immediately, what does the world think of when they see Christians? The first thing is we're angry, we're vitriol, we're against this, we're against that, we're against that. And how much more glorifying it is to get to say, oh, I met a Christian, and they express gratitude to me for what I do, mm-hmm. and, they, and they, they gave me this idea of flourishing. And that eventually, yeah, you're going to get to that homosexuality conversation, as you talk about flourishing, but it's 10 miles down the road. Mm-hmm. But we are so known for flipping the script. Yep. Yeah, that's a good point. This side of the room, it's a little weighted. They're kind of, okay. Gentlemen on the left. <laughs> Come on down. What are your guys' thoughts? One, uh, one smart by accident thing I did this year as a pastor is I invited a woman at my church who's a 777 pilot to come up, and I interviewed her on the stage. Yes. And uh, it's super unusual for a woman to rise that high as a pilot. She's experienced all sorts of sexual harassment. And we just talked about that. And afterward, there were several women in my church who were in tears. Mm-hmm. Just know it, seeing this woman up front, hearing her story, it just empowered them so much. I love that. If I were thinking clearly in the future, I would even uh, commission business people, commission teachers, I, mean, I love where the direction you're going. With. Yeah, we're about to talk about that. So hold on. We're about to get practical on how do you begin to do this. Commissioning, vocational interviews, blessings. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, your, your, your brain's on the right track with that. So hold on to that. Uh, you're right. <laughs> or my brain's on the right track. I'm one or the other. I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe it's me. Anything over here, guys? I don't want to call you out, but I just did. Um, all right. How about let's jump in. Um, pragmatically, how do we begin to do some of this? And this is geared a little bit towards the institutional church. Um, Keep your context in mind. Here are kind of the best practices, but I want to tell you the best practices don't produce immediate results. This is not a church growth strategy. This is not a church technique. This isn't sticky church. This isn't Redeemer city to city. This isn't evangelism explosion. This is trying to lift faith and work up into its proper place. And it's longer and harder and messier than you think. We'll get into that in a second. But uh, we see the best practices, but not immediate results more than anything else. If you're looking for a magic bullet, this is not it. 
uh, teaching a robust theology that informs people's work, the fullness of the gospel, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, or what we said ought, is, can, will. And what we say is you marinate in that with your leadership. You don't do a sermon series on it immediately. You don't do a Bible study. You just sit with it in your leadership. You begin to ask the question, what does my community have and what can be in our community? Uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux says this way. It's been challenging to me. Most people treat their life like a canal. It's just a pass-through. But the wise person treats their life like a reservoir. They only give out of the overflow without loss to itself. Then he says, it's my fear that many in the church are canals and not reservoirs. The intention is you need to be a reservoir with this. Marinate in it. The second thing is cultivating a liturgical regularity that affirms people's work affirms people's work. That's what you're getting to. The idea is like this expression for the life of the world and what people do should be celebrated and uplifted in Sunday morning worship. Here are some things that we've discovered that work out really well. Vocational interviews, what our church did in December. We did this thing called This Time Tomorrow. We brought up seven different people from seven different spheres in a culture of school teachers, artists, to go, hey, this time tomorrow, on Monday morning, what are you going to be doing? And they begin to say what they did. Hey, what's hard about your job? Like, where do you experience the fall? Where do you experience God? How does it connect to the grander story? And can we pray? And our people loved it. In February, we did a church survey. And I don't want to tell you how highly rated I got rated beyond my sermons. It was powerful for us. Um, the other thing other churches do is vocational prayers. So what we attempt to do in our church, we meet in a school, is we pray for the school and teachers at the beginning and end. Um, you can pray for software developers. You can pray for attorneys. But you make it part of your corporate liturgy. Um, you can commission folks if they're starting new businesses. So liturgical regularity. Um, I would say vocational interviews, really helpful to do. We have a framework we can pass on to you if that's interesting. The other thing is uh, embracing pastoral practices that invest and applauds people work, uh, people's work. Um, that means actually pastoring into the work, workplace. Uh, it could be workplace prayers. You know, people have gone to new businesses and go, hey, can we like pray for the, the, the benefit and beauty of your business? Would that be weird if we got everybody together? They've done that. Uh, pastoral visits. Pastors, visit your workplace. Celebrations. Uh, we had a member of our congregation who's a law enforcement officer. He won Deputy of the Year. And so we gave him another award, which is kind of funny because he doesn't want to be celebrated. But we go, hey, this guy won Deputy of the Year in our county. He's doing good work for our community. This is God honoring. Um, these are kind of the three best practices. But let me tell you the observations. I've been in this stream for a while, and our church is on this journey as well. It's a little messy. Uh, observation one. Discipling people for the life of the world is high risk and low immediacy. It's like drip irrigation because it's a change in people's operating systems. So say you've got to play the long game with this. It takes years to weave it into your congregation. Uh, weave this into your vision, mission, DNA values, but only in time, at the right time. And then all disappointment is rooted in unmet expectations. Isn't it? That's true for my marriage. Uh, so fail people's expectations at a rate they can handle. Second observation. People's favorite subject is themselves. 
So I say don't do faith and work programs. If you're going to do this, tell people you're committed to discipleship based upon their everyday lives. Say, we are a church. We are a small group. We are a community. We are a missions organization that takes your life, public and private, seriously. So we say to take people's lives seriously. This is crude pastor math. There's roughly 168 hours in a week. There is 168 hours in a week, exactly, sorry. (laughs) No, roughly. Uh, 112 are awake. Roughly 50% are towards work, prep, commute. 40% is household. That's family. That's community. That's your neighborhood. The other 10% is hit or miss. But take people's lives seriously. That means we have to examine our sermons and our programs. Are they discipling for people for Sunday or for these other hours? Which brings me to observation three. This is the biggest one for me out of anything as I begin to talk about this in our church and with our leaders. Hidden curriculum trumps formal curriculum. It doesn't matter what you're telling, it's what you're showing. And all of us most likely have some sort of hidden curriculum. Uh, So we have to begin to be aware of that and then float these other ideas that I talk about. This last idea, don't underestimate people's functional theology as their own end. What are people's functional theology? We all have it. Everybody is asking or answering these questions somehow in your ministry context. What is sacred and what is secular? Your people, your family, your coworkers have an idea of what is sacred and what is secular. What is spirituality? What is it actually to mature in the faith? Is it just to memorize the confession of faith, to know the four spiritual laws? Or is it to be responsible and just in your workplace? My favorite one, what's a calling and who gets one? Because typically in churches, the people who get callings are people like me with the red name badges. Not the attorneys, the doctors, the software developers. And is work good or evil? I think there's a lot of work to be done on calling in our churches. We have overemphasized ordained pastoral ministry at the loss of other vocations. And this is the best representation I've seen of functional theology. It's a life wheel. You might have seen this before. Um, Michael Hyatt, who's actually been really helpful for me, he uses something like this. You can see the lives of, of life are, uh, or the sections of life are, are partitioned up. There's business, there's finance, there's health, there's social, there's family, there's love, there's rest, there's contribution, there's growth, there's spirituality. If I'm honest, this is how the majority of people think. And there's something deeply wrong with this. What is it? All the parts are equal. All the parts are equal, yes. They're all separate. They're all separate. And I would say spirituality is just a section of life when it should be the lens we view it all. All of life is sacred. All of life is beautiful. We should be thinking Christianly about all these different areas, but we've partitioned it out. This is people's functional theology. Observation four for me. Most sermons are you need to blank. Why? Because the Bible Bible says so. We typically talk about the will. And what I've discovered, the real roadblocks to people's lives being integrated and missional in my congregation is time. 
a lot of young families in my congregation juggling a lot of responsibilities. Housing makes usually two people work out of the homes. So you have a dual family income, so it's time. People are tired. And our church meets in a school, so guess what? We have a large volunteer chunk trying to just get Sunday morning run. But you need to identify the real roadblocks to people's lives being integrated and missional. Ask them for a long time and keep on asking them. Curiosity is your friend. I don't like this question below. This has been convicting to me. Ask what question is my sermon answering and for whom? Is it for you? Is it for your seminary buddies? Is it for your ego? Who is it actually for? What do you mean by ask them for a long time? Just what was the, there are a few things I could fit into that. The, the, the roadblocks, because most likely people aren't aware of their full roadblocks yet. Ask them what their roadblocks are. Continually to ask. Be a student of your congregation over and over and over and over of your people. Eugene Peterson talks about being a harpooner. Like overseeing the ocean and being still and asking and being poised. Because most people aren't fully aware. And there's multiple influences going on. And the issue is, uh, this, is a, this is a free one. Um, they say when you cut open a brain of a doctor and a pastor, it's the same. So overdeveloped prefrontal cortex, prone to narcissism, prone to quick answers, always finding the solution. So this maintains proper pastoral humility as well. Yeah. So that's free. I don't, uh, not saying that, you know, you're, I don't even know you. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like, but yeah. <laughs> um, observation five, most successful churches believe in trickle down faith work and economics. This means it's slow. It begins at the top. Uh, live this personally before you lead. Show this to your leadership and don't tell. One thing we did at our church is not perfect. We decided on a vision statement and sat on it for nine months and didn't tell anybody about it because we wanted to incubate it and grow in it. It hasn't been perfect, but we knew we had to do some of this and live into it a little bit. Move from the leadership down. We say practice-based spirituality. That's basically bringing the whole person to this work. And then uh, the key benefit for us is finding a supporting partner in your community. That could be a made of floor city network. It could be a like-minded church. It could be a pastor who has these ideas. But it's good not to do these things alone. Um, in a minute, we're going to jump into a, a panel of people in our congregation and like trying to live this out as so you can see the goodness and the difficulty of it. But first, any questions or comments before we jump into that? Thoughts? wanted to comment this is more of a program thing and I, I get it it can't be about a program but we've been doing classes bringing together people of one type of employment yes so all of people in the medical profession to talk about what does it mean to integrate and faith, the whole biblical worldview into yes. where you're going and it's been really really successful just due to the fact that people understand one another you know, so our group of teachers all working through this together. And it's, so it's just been a really good experience. Yeah, it's helpful. Uh, and sorry, what's your name? Sharon? I'm Sharon. Yeah, Sharon's talking about a great idea called vocational integration groups, where you basically take a cross-section, say you have a lot of therapists or doctors, to get them together and to think thoughtfully about their vocation and what it would look like. And it's a powerful discipleship tool. And for community as well. So that's great. Yes, inside. please. So I think a lot of times, maybe this is like elders, pastors, 
members, I don't know. It feels like it applied to all of them, but a lot of times we, um, we start by thinking, yeah, I've got to find a church like that. Like, as opposed to, oh, okay, how can I, over the long haul, week by week, day by day, prayer by prayer, help my church catch this? Mm-hmm. Do you have any comments on that? How much are you looking for the church that wants to go there with you? Whether you're a member, or you're church shopping, you're in, you're in leadership, versus just saying, God called me here, and, I, and that feels compelling to me, so therefore I will something. Yeah, uh, help me understand the question again one more time. Like, how much do I or others like look for a church like this? Or all Christians, like any of us that say we buy into what you're doing, do we? Do you say, okay, so I'm going to have two years. I'm just going to pray for this. So, like you talked about, nine months you you sat on the vision. Maybe even a neighborhood church. I don't know if you said when you said, "Ooh, neighborhood church wants to go here. I want to go here. We should work together." Versus saying, "I'm called a neighborhood church." It may take five years till neighborhood church loves this like I do. Yeah. Or whatever. I, you know. yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I, I would say explain it this way. Um, our church is headed down this path, and it's still growing. And it's not for the sake of, I want our church to be a faith and work integrated church and known for faith and work. I think it's part of my pastoral responsibility to pastor people in the public part of their lives. And so I'm going to stumble forward in that direction because I want them to see how their faith connects to the workplace and not to see it for one hour on a Sunday. And so it's not as clean as it is, but I think it's part of my pastoral responsibility. And sure, like if we were, if we were planting a church, it would be a lot cleaner and easier. But for a lot of people, this is, um, it's a mindset shift and there's fear. Uh, there can be fear of going, hey, are we leaving the gospel? No, no, no. You already brought it up. Like the gospel, yes, is Jesus Christ dying for my sins in my place, redeeming me. And there's implications for that. I want to live out for the sake of the world too. It's a both and. So I just think it's pastoral patience. And as a pastor, this makes it so much more imaginative than preparing a curated sermon on a Sunday morning and making sure that goes well. I think it lifts the lid of imagination. So is that helpful? Okay. Yeah. Thoughts, questions, comments?